Good morning. My name is uh, Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, are you ready to talk about love? We got one person. Awesome. Yeah, Dan. All right. Good job, bro. I love it. Um, Open up your Bible. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 7. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 7, as we start there. I want to tell you a story about a couple uh, who came to the church a while ago, and and, uh, they were recently engaged, and the um, couple come up, and they say, Michael, we have a question for you. Um, We hear you do premarital counseling, and we would be really interested in you doing our premarital counseling. And the guy looks at her like, we are? Yeah, totally. So um, she says, what do you do in premarital counseling? And we said, well, um, we like to find your strengths, the things that God has really made you excellent at. We like to draw out some of the pitfalls or potential um, uh, difficulties that you're going to run into. And and, uh, really, when you boil it all down, we help you ask and answer questions that honestly most couples don't ask in this season of their relationship. And she said, like what? Like she was thinking, we've talked about everything, of course. And so I said, so for example, like we'll sit down with a couple and we'll say, are, are you both Christians? And uh, so I looked at her and I said, are you a Christian? And she says, oh, of course I'm a Christian. I absolutely am a Christian. And she looks at him and he says, well, you know, and the more he talked, it ended up being that he was an agnostic bordering on atheism. And she's sitting here like, what? You, where did this come from? I didn't even see that. I said, see like that. You should go to premarital counseling. This is good for you. And uh, this is really typical. We'll sit with couples, and they've asked a couple questions, but there's a whole myriad of issues that um, they have not even begun to look at. And so what I want to do this morning when we look at Song of Solomon, um, what I wanted to help you do is just take an honest look at your relationship. You might be thinking, because we're going to be dealing with a couple who, at this point in the story, they're betrothed or engaged, that this does not apply to you, and that is just not the case, whether you are dating looking at dating, engaged, or you've been married and you're 95 years old next to your spouse, um, this sermon I really think does apply to you. And uh, I want to just start with two caveats, because over the last couple weeks, particularly this last week, um, I have had two groups of people basically share the following sentiment with me. And they said, we don't understand why this is relevant to our lives. And uh, so um, the first group are those who have been married. And you wouldn't think this. Actually, you would think that most spouses would want their husbands or wives to listen to a sermon series like this. And and, uh, so what I want to do is I want to just take a moment. I want to talk to those of you who are married. And you're thinking to yourself, why am I going to listen to a book about love and sex and romance and attraction? And uh, I want to share with you a couple things if you're married. Number one, um, when you die and you stand before God on the day of judgment, I really believe there are going to be two relationships that you are first and foremost going to give an accounting for. And number one is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him, number one? And how have you stewarded this relationship? Are you growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? I believe you'll be accountable for that. And if you are married, you'll be accountable for the the second most important relationship in your life, which is how is your relationship with your spouse? And what most most couples think is this. um, I provided. I didn't cheat and I stuck it out the whole time, I'm good. And what we learned through Song of Solomon is that God is not simply just concerned that you didn't cheat and you stuck it out. He's actually really concerned with the quality of your your relationship. And so number one, I would just look at you and say, you are going to be accountable to God, and God desires that your marriage would bring him much glory and bring you much joy. Number two, your spouse wants you to grow and change. Can I get an amen? (laughs) No, no one? 
Oh, she's perfect. Every husband is like, nope, she's perfect. Nothing, wouldn't change a thing, right? And uh, your spouse wants you to grow. So like in honor of the fact that you're married to somebody and you have not been the best husband or wife, take a moment, open up your app, take notes, take the notes that we handed out, write some stuff down. Just give them the illusion that you're interested and it will go a long way for you. But, but finally, and here, here's one of the things I think is just so utterly important here. Um, marriages don't just grow and get better, okay? Um, when you're like dating and you're engaged, and as the woman in Song of Solomon says, she's lovesick, right? This is sort of like adolescence to a boy, right? You just give him a little bit of food, and what's that kid going to do? He's going to grow, right? But there comes a point where adolescence is over, and that kid is going to start, we'll just say, gaining weight and not looking very strong if he doesn't tend to his body. And so this is very much what, what, what marriage is like. Marriage at the beginning, this attraction, this energy is enough to feed it for a season. But if you do not constantly attend to your relationship with your spouse, you are wired to disintegrate. You are wired to not have affection and romance. And so this is something that we find that if you are married, you have to fight for. I like to think of it like Coca-Cola, which is objectively, statistically, the best soft drink on the market, right? Good, we're on the same page, all right. Pepsi fans, you're not even Christians. Like, that's even just weird, <laughs> I didn't get you. But, so like it's a hot day, right? And you, you just, you're like, I want a Coke. And let's just say you're in your caloric limit, Americans, all right? You're just like, this is gonna work. And you open up the Coke, and it is so satisfying. But then there's that moment where you pour, you pour the Coke in, in a cup, and you drink it, and it is, flat. There is nothing more vomitous than <laughs> Coke that has lost its carbonation power, okay? And that is what most Christian marriages are like. You were carbonated, you didn't close the top, you didn't tend to it, you might need to inject a little bit of extra carbonation into this thing. And I think that's what Song of Solomon is like for many marriages. This thing that is great and good and brings God glory, it is flat and you need to change what you're doing because you haven't tended to this thing. You've let it go and when, when marriage and relationships are not tended to, they inevitably disintegrate. Uh, so now, some of you um, are single, and I've heard from many single people now, um, I don't see the point of this. This is not relevant for me. And I want to just speak to singles for a moment. I want to speak candidly. Uh, number one, you may not be single forever. And if I were you, I would want to accrue as much wisdom from God's word as humanly possible. But let's say you're going to be single forever, and that is God's will for your life. This is in God's word and reveals God's heart. Do you want to know God's heart? And if you do, single or married, you can sit here and you can learn about something that is very precious and very meaningful to the heart of God. Number, number three, if you're single and you're married to somebody who is dating, engaged, or married, they are doing dumb things and they will continue to do dumb things. And you have a voice. And my encouragement for you is to not forsake wisdom because let's say you're 18, you're 25, you're 45. Do you want to invest in the next generation of imbeciles who are learning how to date? <laughs> the answer is, I don't know, do you? Because they're not getting wisdom from parents, by and large. They're not getting wisdom from churches, by and large. They're learning, most young people are learning wisdom flat out from culture, from what their friends are doing, that's it. 
And the church is, exists to be a bright shining light of the best and most compelling and logical and God-glorifying wisdom on the planet. Whether you are 95 and single or you're 18 and single, you have the opportunity to open your mouth and speak words of wisdom into many lives who are going to be pursuing marriage, dating, relationships, romance, etc. And so I just want to look at you and say, if you're single, I can't promise you or guarantee you God's future for you, but I can guarantee you this. You are created to have a voice with those who are younger than you and those who need wisdom from you, and you need to be equipped to speak helpfully. Now, I hope that helps. Let's talk about Song of Solomon for a moment, some context. You may have not been with us last week. Um, this is an eight-chapter song. It is poetry, and the song is written by King Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived. Um, he penned, uh, I think, 1,005 songs, and this is called, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs. Of all of the songs that the wisest man in the world wrote, this song is the best in substance, style, melody. This is his pinnacle song. And the song is written as a celebration of love between him and his favorite love, his first love in all likeliness. And if you know anything about Solomon, you knew that eventually he forsook monogamy and he had, oh, a thousand wives, 700 wives technically who were princesses and 300 concubines, okay? And uh, so what we find even is that this man who celebrates this beautiful picture of love ends up forsaking this and I believe regretting it pretty massively. And so one of the things you need to understand about Song of Solomon, if you wanna read this and understand the sermon and the series, is that Song of Solomon is one big song, and each there, there are a number of what we'll call verses in the song. And each verse is like a snapshot in this couple's relationship. So, for example, if I were to tell you the story of my um, love with my wife, Brianne, it started when we met at Moody Bible Institute. Maybe I took a picture, and I showed you that picture, right? And I just told a little story. The next picture, fast forward to our engagement. And the next picture, fast forwarded to our wedding day. And the next picture, fast forwarded to when we got dogs and our house or graduate. And each of these moments, these snapshots, when you string them together, they're telling a story. And so what what Solomon is doing is he's pulling out a number of these snapshots and we're just getting lost in each sermon and in each of these snapshots. And each of these are revealing God's will and God's desire for marriage and love and sex and romance. Now, two things you need to know about where we're at today. Number one, this couple is likely betrothed. They're likely engaged, which means they are moving toward marriage, okay? This isn't like a brand new couple. He didn't just see her and he's all like, hey baby, your love is like wine. And it wasn't, nothing like that. They, they know each other. They're moving toward marriage. Number two, very important. This is narrative poetry. Narrative poetry. Here's what that means. In the Bible, narratives are stories and what narratives don't typically do is they don't tell you the point, they show you the point. They don't tell you the principle, they tell you the story that reveals the principle. And so what we have to do when we read narrative, particularly narrative that's poetry, is we have to look at it and say, what is God showing us as the ideal through this story? So we're gonna do that, and here's how I wanna go about this with you. I want you to ask four questions about your relationship, um, whether you're married, dating, engaged, whatever it is. These are just four questions to help you take a pulse on your relationship. Am I in a place where this relationship is bringing God glory? Uh, and that's what we want to ask. So number one, if you look at your notes, uh, and pardon the projectors, they are long gone. So um, open up your Bibles, look at the notes. And the first question I want to ask you is this. 
are secrets brewing. Secrets kill intimacy. They kill it. Holiness, it does not grow in the dark. Sin does. So before marriage, typically couples are hiding things about their relationship from other people. Uh, typically, before a couple gets married, um, because of the strong desire and attraction that God puts inside of them, um, often, and I would just tell you, more times than not, compromise happens, and this compromise happens in the dark. And so typically, couples who are dating, they start to hide aspects of their life from those other Christians in their life who might hold them accountable. And I would just pose this question to you. Feel free to answer me another time. Um, are there any aspects of a couple's relationship who is dating or engaged that need to be hidden from spiritual mentors and leaders? And I can't think of one. I invite you at another time to help me that. But now, after marriage, rather than couples hiding what they're doing uh, about, uh, from other people, they're hiding uh, their, own, their own secrets from each other. And so this is what happens in marriage when one couple, uh, one person in a couple has secrets then the marriage inevitably begins to grow farther and farther apart. I'm gonna show you this in chapter one, verse seven. She says, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. And the word noon is going to become very important because is noon daytime or nighttime? The answer is daytime. Whoever said nighttime, you're wrong. Noon is at daytime. And then she says, why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? As we mentioned last week, what this means is, is that there are a group of whores or prostitutes um, that would find the shepherds and they would dress up and veil themselves in a certain way. And the expectation was that they would pay for sex. Uh, these are very loose women. And here's what she's saying right on the front end. Here's what she's saying. I will not be like those women. I will not be it. We will meet at noon. We will meet in the daytime. This will be public. This will not be something where I cover up my face so no one knows who I am. This will be something, if you want to be with me, this is going to be out loud. None of this stuff where you're like, you know, let's just, let's just date in private, but I really want to tell my family or my friends about this. Like, none of these shenanigans. If you want to date me, you better be loud and proud about it. And you might be thinking, Michael, do people really do this? I don't have words for the level of disappointment that I see amongst young Christians in the church and the secrets that they're holding almost all revolving around their sexual relationships that they're trying to hide. I don't have words for the number of guys who will tell a girl, um, you need to be um, close with me, but I won't, you, you need to be physical with me, but I won't be your boyfriend. This is so regular and it's pathetic. And I'm at a point, some have wondered, like, why are you preaching in this book? Because the marriages in most churches are flat Coca-Cola, and the singles and engaged rarely, rarely have a biblical worldview on sexuality, attraction, or God's will for this. And so we just step back, and I love this, and we just see that she's like, I'm not going to be like this. And even, here's what is so interesting, that if you just read this really quickly, you're going to miss this. It is the expectation that this could even happen. So let's rewind to Solomon's dad. Many scholars believe that David didn't just have sex with Bathsheba, but he raped her. And I want to tell you why. Because when the king approaches you and makes it clear he wants to have sex with you, you don't get to say no. He did not need to force himself. All he needed to do was ask, and the implications were completely clear. When Solomon 
comes to this woman, it is not unusual or unexpected that the king would expect her to give her body to him. She initiates the discussion and says, we will meet at noon and I'm not going to be like the prostitutes. Now, what are you going to do about that, Solomon? And Solomon's response is amazing. Verse 8, he says this, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats besides the shepherd's tents. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, do you know who I am? He does not say, I don't think I can make it. If you don't give me this, I don't think this is going to work. There are no threats. We have a strong, godly woman who understands her boundaries. And we've got an even stronger man who honors her, treats her with dignity and respect. And I just want to tell you, there's nothing secret about this. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, we see that he even goes further with this publicity. Chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, He brought me to the banqueting house. Literally, this is a house of wine. It was a place where they would go to drink and they would bring their friends. And so Solomon takes him to this place. You may call it a banqueting hall. It's probably a bit too formal for what this really means. But he brings her to a place in front of his friends, publicly, where everybody would see this. And then it goes on and says this. And his banner over me was what? Love. Two words here. Number one is banner. Banner is marked identity. So when the banner would go up, it would be king so-and-so, and wherever that banner was marked the identity typically of the troops that were there. Uh, and then we finally here see number two, the banners marked protection. That what, what, what was ever under this banner was protected by the authority of the king. So if you mess with the thing under the banner, who are you messing with? The king. So you don't mess with the king, you don't mess with the person. And so she is sitting here and she's saying his banner over me is love. Now, this is where this gets really meaningful because there's a few words for love in the Hebrew language. Let me share with you three of them. Number one is raya, which is friendship. It's like, good, you want to be friends? That's, that's that. But then there is what's called dode. Dode is, I want your body now kind of love, okay? So in Genesis chapter, or Solomon chapter one, verse two, she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine your dode is better than wine. And she's saying there, I want a sexual relationship with you more than I want the biblical buzz of wine. And then we finally have this, and this is the word here used, his banner over me was, is ahava. This is a soul connection kind of love. This is a deep, connected, deeper than friendship, more long-lasting and meaningful than Dode. This is a soul connection, committed friendship. He did not say to her, his banner over me was Dode. This is what I call the Six, park, uh, six Flags couple, the Six Flags uh, parks, right? And the guy is always having to walk directly behind the girl like this all the way across the park. Anybody see that? It's the most uncomfortable thing you've ever seen. His banner over her is Dode, okay? But not Solomon. Solomon's banner over her is Ahava. This is my friend. This is my soul's companion. This is deeper than just a dode, and it's deeper than all you buddies out there that I'm experiencing raya, friendship, love with. This love, they go public with it. I love that. Number two, our insecurities growing. So you have to take a moment. You cannot read this book and not strongly empathize with this woman, okay? Let's just start number one. Uh, her brothers 
treated her really badly, we learned, to the point where they put her outside to work the fields because they were angry with her. What that means is the social conceptions of beauty, meaning a fair skin and a soft body, she had dark skin and a hard body, which you may like now in 21st century Western culture, but that was not attractive back in this time. And her brothers stole from her, in a sense, her, her cultural uh, um, concepts of beauty. Number one. Number two, she is surrounded by the most beautiful virgins in the world who all want her man. They are throwing themselves at him. They want him. They want to be his wife. Even if they're one of 700, they want his body. They want his money. They want this man. Now, I like to compare these women to supermodels. I want you to imagine, ladies, you're you. You're normal you. And there are supermodels throwing themselves at your husband. Would that create insecurity in you? Please say yes. And if you say no, that's great. But the answer is yes. OK, good. <laughs> and then I think the third thing is it is, it is not like slipped past her mind. Somehow in this context, I have caught the eye of the most powerful man in the entire world. Like, this is weird. The whole thing is just strange, and it's weird. And we learned last week um, what happened is she was talking to the daughters of Jerusalem. And you may be wondering, who are the daughters of Jerusalem? It's a great question. It's really hard to nail down. Um, they're like this choral group that keeps popping up. Um, sometimes they're really flighty and dumb. Sometimes they just observe interesting things. I call them the TMZ girls. They're always, like, gossiping, and they're like, you know. Um, so they're there, but they, they do play a relevant part in the story and how they tell the story. And so um, last week we saw that she goes up to them and she says, do not gaze at me. Stop staring at me. I might be dark, but I'm lovely, and here's why I'm dark. Like, you already see last week that she's insecure about her physical appearance. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, here's what she says. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, your brain is preconditioned to interpret this in one way. All of a sudden, she thinks she's hot stuff. That is not correct. And let me help you understand this. Number one, a rose of Sharon is probably a hibiscus-like flower in a fairly fertile place called Sharon, and it was a common flower. Was it beautiful? Everybody say yes. Yes, but it was not one of a kind, okay? It was one amongst many beautiful flowers. And then you get the lily of the valley. Guess what's in the valley? Lots of lilies. She's not saying, I'm super duper. What she's saying is this. Look, Solomon, I, I get it. I'm lovely. I, I get that. But I'm just one of many. When you look at all the virgins and the daughters of Jerusalem, all these people, like, what is it about me that makes you want me? At this point, guys, this is where I think you just need to take some serious notes from Solomon. Because at the core of every single woman is going to be physical insecurity that she has to overcome eventually or will likely stick with her her entire life. And you put her in a room with a bunch of supermodels and what's going to happen? That insecurity is going to go through the roof. And you have a responsibility to kill insecurity in your spouse about her soul and her body. Can I get an amen, ladies? Amen. The ladies are like pumped. They're like, listen up, dudes. like kicking you underneath the, the pews here, okay? He looks at her and he says, no, you're not a lily of the valley. You are not a rose of Sharon. Here's what he says. You 
are a lily among thorns or brambles. So he hears her. He hears her insecurity. And he says, no, I understand that in your eyes you're comparing yourself to them, but they, to me, they're like thorns, and you are the lily that sticks out amongst the thorns. You are precious, and you are beautiful, and by the way, they're airheads anyway, and your character rocks. This is true, right? Most guys don't want to be married to somebody who's incredibly dumb. And so she's looking at them and saying, they're all body. You have soul. You have substance. We have raya and we have ahava. And what I want to do on that foundation is I want to move towards marriage and then experience the blessing of Dod. Now, you would ask yourself, okay, um, he's trying to address her insecurities. Was he successful? Let me be clear. He was, he was successful. <laughs> Okay, listen to what's said. And again, you might just read over it, right? So beautiful when you slow down. She says, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Five words. Number one, apple tree. This is an erotic term, likely probably a pomegranate tree, right? Um, which is also seen as an aphrodisiac. This is a very erotic term, right? Her response to his words of security was this. I want to give you dode. That's functionally what she's saying. But that's not it. Don't get me wrong. She goes on. You have the word my beloved. What does she give the man who convinces her soul that she is beautiful in body and soul. Affection. And she calls him my beloved. Another word that sticks out is delight. When she is in his presence, he brings her soul happiness. Guys, do you want this from your wives, by the way? Do you want her to want to give you dough? Do you want her to want to um, have affection with you? Do you want, like, yeah, when my wife's around me, she is happy, right? Right, guys, yeah? Figure out, thank you. Figure out what Solomon is doing. Then we get the word shade, right? She is protected. She is safe. He provides protection for her, and she wants to be in his shade. She wants to sit under this tree. And then I love this last one. It's sweet to the taste. He, he is satisfying to her. He's not having to run around to the other prostitutes and the veiled women because this girl fundamentally loves him. Look how he responds. So personally, I think we could take some notes from this guy. When you can, with genuine and sincere love, speak to a woman's insecure body and soul and build ahava with her, she is wired by God to want to respond and to sit in your shade and to feel safe with you and to call you my beloved and ultimately to give you dode. Number three, are words tearing? Words reveal, right? I won't ask when's the last time you built up your spouse. Let's just notice a couple things. In the text we're in this morning, I'll just give you an overview. She calls him my beloved four times. You, you whom my soul loves. She says to him, you are beautiful. It is a constant barrage of verbal building up. He calls, says to her, you are beautiful twice. Calls her almost beautiful among women and calls her my love twice. Do you hear how affectionate the words that are coming out of their mouths are? It's profound. In chapter 1, verse 8, um, I think this is priceless. He says, if you don't know, almost beautiful among women, 
I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. You're a horse, baby. <laughs> your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So there's two, two historic, probably, interpretations of this. And the first one uh, would say this, that she was the mare that carried Pharaoh's chariots, which is an esteemed, beautiful, unique among all the other ones. Unfortunately, it seems that, uh, it seems, it's hard to nail it all down, but historically, two stallions would carry um, the chariot of Pharaoh. It seems the more likely interpretation is this. You're like a female horse that gets put out amongst the stallions, and they all want you. <laughs> He's saying, you're not just desirable to me, you're objectively desirable. Now, it's kind of crass at times, right? But the point is this. He's taking her insecurities, and he's just dismantling them one at one, and then they have this almost competition where they're building each other up. Chapter 1, verse 12, she says this. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Nard or spike nard, very expensive, apparently found in the Himalayas in India, very hard to get to, very valuable. I've never smelled it. I'm sure it smells great. And then she says in verse 13, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. And the idea here is this, that the myrrh would give forth this fragrance, and a woman would walk into the room, and they would smell her, and they would think positively of the woman. But here's what's interesting. When she walks into a room, what is it that is making people say, you smell good? What, what is it about people that they're looking at her and they're saying, that's, that's attractive? It's him. She is the smell. She's like, when I'm with you, you make me better. You make me more attractive. You, like, I want to be with you. Other people want you, but I've got you. And you are the mare that makes me smell good. Or the myrrh that makes me, not the mare, <laughs> trust me. The myrrh that makes me smell good. Now let's just take a very humorous like, pause for a moment. And let's talk about something really funny. Okay? So the history of Christian interpretation and Jewish interpretation of Song of Solomon is epic. It's very hilarious. I, I really have been toying with doing one whole sermon on all of the most ridiculous applications from this book, right? Because they're insane. So I'd like to just take a moment, let's have some levity here, and uh, tell you about a Jewish um, understanding of Song of Solomon because they're petrified about it really being what it's actually about, which is a love story between a man and a woman. So Jewish scholars um, have seen that the bride's breasts are, represent Moses and Aaron, the two messiahs, Messiah, son of David, Messiah, son of Ephraim, Moses and Phineas, Joshua and Eleazar. Like, I imagine you're sitting in temple and the priest is like, oh, this isn't about literal breasts. Let me do it. One breast is about Moses and the other is about the Messiah, right? Like, okay, good. Uh, Christians are no better. Uh, they've been pretty ingenious. And uh, they have seen the bride's breasts representing the church from which we feed, the two testaments, old and new, the twin precepts of love, uh, of the love of God and love of neighbor, um, the blood and the water. Uh, it's just insane. Like the fear that people have had of just looking at this book and being like, no, 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 the way the myrrh smells between my breasts and everybody's like, oh, that smells good. That's what you're like to me. You like make me smell good, right? Like that's basically what she's saying. Anyways, let's get back to the text. She says, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi was found in Israel. It's this oasis in the middle of a very parched desert. And she's like, you know what? There is so much death and there's so much dryness all around. But when I'm with you, you are protection, you are shade, you are nourishment, you are satisfying. I want to be under your shade. You are a beautiful blossom found in the middle of nowhere in a parched world. You are this unique 
beautiful flower that sticks out. And most guys, you're like, I don't want to be called a flower, but she likes it. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. You see how he is relentless about going after her insecurities and bringing her security of body and of soul. She says, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. She goes on and says, our couch is green. And you're like, who cares about their couch? The beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. And here's what she's actually trying to communicate is they're out in some kind of outdoor um, place of Solomon's. And they're having this romantic moment. I'm sure his bodyguards are around. And what she's saying is this, like, we're moving towards our wedding day. You're taking me out. You're just taking these opportunities to encourage me and to bless me, to build our ahava. And the response in her is profound because she wants to give him her dode once she has ahava. Number four is purity compromised. Just a few things on this. Go back to verse seven. Purity is countercultural. For many of you, this is like ah, purity, blah, 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 blah. This is of the highest value to Jesus Christ. So important to him. And what you're going to find is that if you are going to be the woman who says, I will not play the other games of the other women. I will not veil myself. I will meet you at noon. And by the way, we're going to meet with your friends and you're going to put a banner over me that says, ahava, right? Like if you're going to be that woman, okay, you're going to be fundamentally different. Because Solomon could have said, you're too much work. I'll go to the virgins and get what I want anyways. But he didn't do that. She didn't, she didn't fall for the game. She stood strong and she said, I am a godly woman and this is going to mean you are going to be fundamentally unique and different than the vast majority, forget about the world, of Christian men and women who have not been trained or taught by dads, moms, pastors, or mentors and they are living their lives with a lie. They are learning love and romance and attraction from culture rather than looking to God's word. Number two, purity takes two. His response to her is a requirement for this relationship to remain pure. And here's what I want to tell you. I cannot tell you how many dudes or women have resolved, I will be pure, and the pressure from the other one exploits their insecurities, and they give in. This happens from men to women and women to men. Women understand the power of their sexuality and how they can control a man with it. Uh, men understand the power of a woman's insecurity, whether they say it or not, and can use her body for his own leverage. The amount of times this happens is powerful. If you're in a relationship, dating or engaged, and that person will not respect your body, walk away. Because purity does not all of a sudden happen when you get married. Because if they use you before you're married, what will they do after you're married? They'll use you doesn't make it okay just because you're married. Number three, purity does not mean lack of passion, desire, or affection. I think, in fact, purity assumes it. Chapter 2, verse 4, remember this. He brought me to the banqueting table, and his banner over me was love, ahava. Listen to how she responds to, to his ahava and his public declarations of love. Sustain me with raisins. What? Like, what if you don't like raisins? Like, are you unbiblical? Yes. Refresh me with apples, likely pomegranates, which again, we're an aphrodisiac, very sexual. She says, for I am sick with love. Her response to his ahava is, I want to give you my dode. Now, hear me, she doesn't give it to him yet, 
But I want to just show you, I want to illustrate this for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And by the way, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. Is this a good thing? Say yes. Brings it back. There was this big party. There's dancing and celebration. And then here's what it says. After all of this, um, David distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, good, a portion of meat, awesome, and a cake of raisins to each one. What? Here's what David's saying. Go make love. Let's make more babies. Let's build the nation, right? He actually, it's like a, it's like a national commissioning, right, for them to go make love with their, with their spouses. Now, you might say, no. Then it says this. Then all the people departed where? Each to his house. And then the next verse, which is hilarious, says this. And then David returned to, quote, bless his household. <laughs> I think that's funny. Now, the funny thing here is, y'all know, but I was like, oh, he went home to bless his household. That's a pun. I like that. Like, that's, that's good. Way, way to be conservative. When he gets home, though, when he gets home, who's waiting for him but his wife? And the expectation is that she's going to respond to him. Instead, she's like, I can't believe you humiliated yourself, our family, our name, your children, me, by dancing out in public like any common peasant. Who do you think you are? So David is like, bless the whole nation, right? And then he goes home to bless his own house, and he comes home to his wife, and she is criticizing, 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 criticizing. I guarantee you, do didn't happen. Number four. Actually, look at chapter two, verse six. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Many of your versions are going to say, oh, that his right hand would, oh, that he would. And this seems to be, from the way it's written, it seems to be a dream. Like, oh, I wish that he would. And this is describing a subtle sexual just experience between them. What she's longing for is saying, no, I desire you. I want you. And sort of like this, oh, that he would moment. And then you're wondering, like, what did, what did, what did they do? What did they do? And, and it kind of stops, and the woman takes a pause in chapter 2, verse 7, and she looks around, and she gathers the daughters of Jerusalem. At this point, they're her peers. As you go through the book, the daughters, as she gets older, the daughters of Jerusalem remain younger. And she says something to them that she's going to say three times at least in the book. And each of these are pivotal moments in the book where you might think, if this wasn't in here, um, this, this is absolutely leading towards a sexual relationship, like right here and right now. It's like that intimate and intense. And uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and I'll just say this, purity, it will set you apart. She has to look at them and she says, I adjure you, I plead with you. O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, and we'll explain what that means in a moment, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And the, the reason she's having to say this is because all of these women are just so desperate. Uh, this is just so common. And she looks at her peers and she's doing something fundamentally different and countercultural. She's not like any of the girls. This relationship is different. He's honoring her body. He's honoring her soul. He's a monogamous, like, one-woman man, despite all the opportunities, at least at this point in his life, all the opportunities in front of him. And fundamentally, she's looking at them and she's saying, don't, don't do this. And I think the daughters of Jerusalem just kind of were like, yeah, you're an idiot. Because if any of them had the opportunity, I think they would have given themselves to Solomon. Why? Because that's just what people did. And desperate people do what? Dumb things. 
But I think lastly about purity, it's really hard to get back. And here's what she says. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. What does that mean? Like, have you ever just read that? And you're like, what does a gazelle or doe have to do with anything? Here's what it means. I want you to imagine you want to catch a doe, okay? And doe is this prize catch, right? You're like, I'm going to get this thing. What do you have to be if you're going to get it? Very careful. Because if you just make a wrong noise, what does that doe do? The gazelle. And she's saying that ahava, which culminates in doe, it's like a gazelle or a doe. And I'm pleading with you ladies, I know you want to catch it. I know that this is something good. But if you go too fast, it flies away. You can't get it. And once it goes away, it is really hard to get it back. And so she's like, I, just, I want to just take a moment with you ladies. I want to tell you this. I understand that desperation inside of you is going to want to make you just fast forward and like give him your body and give him your soul and not use your strength. And she's like, look, ahava, ultimately doed, right? They're like a gazelle or a doe. And if you're too finicky with it, if you don't do it in just the right way, if you don't hide, hunt them with just the right amount of tact and skill, it's going to go away and you're going to lose the very thing you want. It will never satisfy you. And she looks at them, I think this is just really meaningful, and says, we're not going to make love right now because we're going to do this thing right. And I know you ladies are looking at me and you're like, how was it? Have you had sex yet? Have you guys gone all the way yet? How far did you go yet? And she's like, I adjure you. I plead with you. Let love take its course in its own time. And you might be wondering in this book, how far did the couple go sexually? I'll tell you, I'll tell you the easy answer. This is the way you can know in the book. The body parts they describe are the body parts they've explored. And right now, you get nothing <clears throat> sexual in terms of the body parts they're talking about. Your eyes, your lips, your face, ornaments, etc. It's actually all very reserved, and it's very pure. And obviously, the, the daughters of Jerusalem are like, well, what's going on? And the author is actually just telling you by the very pacing of the book and the way they interact, this is actually a godly, honoring relationship where you have a man and a woman who are exercising beautiful countercultural self-control. They're not ignoring their desires, which are real and strong, but they are living in a, se in a season of self-control. It's a beautiful thing. It's very hard. Uh, one of the realities, I think, for young people is that um, statistically right now, marriages are happening in their late 20s, early 30s, but the challenge is, is that in adolescence, your body develops sexually. And so because we have this decade-plus gap between most people when they're sexually developed and the point where they can be married and honor God with the use of that sexuality, this gap has created more sexual immorality than we could possibly imagine. <clears throat> so we, we just have to enter in, whether it's in the pulpit or privately, and look at people and say, I get that everything inside of you is wired toward ahava and dod. I get it. But you cannot awaken this before it's time because if you move too fast, it'll flutter away and you won't have it. Personally, I so wish some pastor when I was 12 years old would have gotten up in a pulpit and said these words because nobody ever told me that. I mean, I was told it in weird ways, but I was never told what is going on inside of you is good. God has wired you for it, but here are the dangers. And we heard the big dangers, don't get somebody pregnant, all that other stuff. I mean, you know all about that, but really the very thing, the daughters of Jerusalem, that your soul wants, ahava, if you move too fast, you end up losing it. Powerful, powerful wisdom. I want to close with just a couple so what's. Number one, whether you're married, whether you're single, God cares 
desperately about the quality of the relationships in this church. Desperately. He does not just want husbands and wives who coexist, tolerate, or who just have a common mission to raise kids. I think God's desire is that husbands and wives would learn how to love with ahava, to be affectionate, to dote, to build each other up, to create security. Uh, here's what I do know, that if you have kids, your kids, I don't care, they're going to tell you, no, I don't want to see that, right? But there is something inside of every kid that wants to know mom and dad are affectionate with each other. Powerful, powerful things go on inside of a kid when he knows mom and dad truly love each other. Some of you might be thinking, we're grandparents or great-grandparents. Uh, I believe one of the most beautiful parts of your legacy, if you want to leave a godly spiritual legacy, will be that you are 95 years old and you are still in love with your spouse. That you can still look at your spouse and say, you are a lily among thorns. That is one of the most beautiful legacies that you can give. And the reason so many young people don't want to get married, um, apart from cultural lies, is they look at their mom and dad, they look at their grandma and grandpa, and they say, why would I ever do that? Why would I ever do that when I can have the rush of emotion and attraction and go from one to the other to the other? What I don't realize is that what God really wants is totally something different. He doesn't want you to just jump from one thing to another. He actually wants you to build ahava with another person. And that would culminate in the context of marriage with Dode, and God would smile upon that. If you go outside of his boundaries, <clears throat> his, his concern, his warning is that it will just flutter away, and you'll never, ever get what you want. My, my last so what is this. God wants, he's concerned about marriages. Uh, and there are things that anybody can do, Christian or non-Christian, where you can really grow in your ahava for your spouse. Good. Who cares? Who cares if you have an awesome marriage and go to hell? I, I love watching what this man does for this woman, and I do think there are amazing parallels um, analogically that exist here. God takes people who are used to relationships that are purely economic. If you do this, I'll do this. If you love me, I'll stick with you. If you perform for me, I'll give you affection. I won't divorce you as long as you provide the standard of living, this economic tit-for-tat relationship. And then God comes into our life and says, I'm not like any of that. I am fundamentally committed to you because I gave you my word. I think God comes in and we have all these insecurities. I'm never good enough. I could never be, you can never love me. How could you ever put up with me? And Jesus comes in and says, you are 100% loved, 100% secure, 100% stable. Satan breathes, breathes words of condemnation. You're this, you're that. And the Holy Spirit testifies in our spirit that we're children of God, beloved of God. We are prone to so much impurity and Jesus comes in and starts just conforming our inner heart and our inner man and making pure what was so impure. And I just want to put out before each of you and say this, I want you to have an awesome marriage. I want your legacy to last. Um, but I more importantly want you to know Jesus Christ. And one of the things I know is that if you have Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. I know that if you have the Holy Spirit, you have power. I know that you have the help of God. And if you don't have... Jesus Christ, you do not have God's, God's help. That is one of the hardest things, I think, for people to hear, is that they want to ditch Jesus, and then when things are hard, they're like, Jesus, help me, or God, help me. And that's not how it works. God helps his children, and his children are those who trust in Jesus Christ. And the way you trust in Jesus Christ is by doing this, trusting in Jesus Christ. Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus Christ 
is God's son? Do you believe that he is fully God and that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that it is not by works that you're saved because abusive dads love their wives and they love their kids if they're good enough. Good dads love their wives and kids because of a promise. Do you believe that salvation is not by works? And so what I want to tell you is you're going to need desperate, constant help to be the man or the woman that God has created you to be. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you've never trusted in Jesus, you will not get the kind of help from him that you need. And so I want to most importantly just bathe this whole thing and say, you need to trust in Jesus Christ. So I want to take a moment. I want to just pray. Um, I want to pray for our couples. I want to pray for our engaged couples, our dating couples. Um, those of you who are flat Coca-Cola, <laughs> um, my prayer for you is that even this sermon series would, would ignite a little bit of carbonation in your relationship. Let's pray. Father, first and foremost, there are so many young Christian couples who have just missed the boat, forsaken, abandoned purity, and the gazelle and the doe has just fluttered away and they've lost what they've truly wanted. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would not just convict, but would re- ignite inside of them a passion to play by your rules and to handle this very delicate and powerful thing of love and romance and the way that you've wired it to function. God, I thank you that you're a forgiving God. You're a God of second and one hundredth and one thousandth chances. And I want to thank you that you're a redeeming God and you are a forgiving God. And, and so I just want to pray that for those couples right now who are just in the midst of messing up, God, you would teach them how to press the reset button. Or for those engaged couples or maybe those couples who are dating and they just are realizing, you know what, this is not love what I'm in. It's lust or is using me. Or, God, I pray you would give them the power and the courage to walk away, despite how much it might frustrate or hurt the other person, to do what is right. And Father, I lift up our, our married couples here in this room and, and um, one part of me wishes I could just pray and your Holy Spirit would carbonate flat marriages. And on the other hand, I know, God, that... Um, you are one who comes alongside of us and you enable and you encourage and you help. So God, would you just do that? Would you, by your Holy Spirit right now, be convicting men and women? Um, Lord, if you need to be forceful, do that. If you need to be gentle, we invite that. But God, we really want to be able to take a next step in our own personal lives to really have the kind of relationship that brings you glory and that makes our kids and grandkids want to get married one day. And so God, would you do a miracle in our church would you allow us to raise a bunch of young people who fight for marriage and love marriage and get to show little micro pictures all throughout the rest of their life of how you love us? We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.